You are listening to Talking About Organizations, a podcast about management and organization studies where we read and discuss foundational texts and key ideas that inform the way we think about organized work today. Talking About Organizations is a community resource, and we are grateful to all of our listeners who help keep us the podcast going by donating to the show. We are also grateful and proud to be supported by the Management Learning Journal and the European Group for Organizational Studies. Welcome back. Today we continue episode 63, where we are discussing the topics of remote work and leading at a distance using the Hudson's Bay Company of 17th through 19th century London and Canada as a case study. If you missed part one, you can access it at our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. This is part two of the episode focusing on various smallpox epidemics that occurred during the, during the time frame. We've subtitled the episode, The Pendulum Swing of Governments and Societies Over Time. And we will use a 2004 article by Hackett titled, Averting Disaster, the Hudson's Bay Company and Smallpox in Western Canada during the late 18th and early 19th centuries, published in the Bulletin of the History of Medicine. We now rejoin the conversation. Okay, uh, we do have a second paper that we've read and uh, is, is sort of offers a, a nice little case study of a particular series of situations that uh, Hudson's Bay Company had to deal with. And this had to do with uh, various uh, activities related to dealing with smallpox. The paper was by Paul Hackett, and it was uh, titled Averting Disaster, the Hudson's Bay Company and Smallpox in Western Canada during the late 18th and early 19th centuries. And what he does is he talks about that the organization had gone through several changes in several episodes in dealing with smallpox epidemics as they appeared in North America from the 1730s until, until I guess, the, yeah, the early 19th century. And uh, the, the purpose of it was to sort of highlight uh, the way in which the different trading posts or the different uh, uh, forts had dealt with smallpox, not just in terms of trying to protect its own people, the members of the company, but also all of the local uh, Native Americans who were uh, actively involved in collecting the furs that you know were, were basically the, the company's business. And we didn't spend a lot of time in part one talking about the role that the Native Americans had in this uh, because it wasn't really a big part of the O'Leary paper. They talked in general terms about, yeah, the, the Native Americans were very important and that the officials were dealing with Native American tribes to try to ensure the, the steady supply uh, of furs. But then uh, here in the case of smallpox, then you really saw a little bit more detail about the relationships that these uh, posts had with the the native uh, tribes that they were um, that they were dependent upon, and it was interesting in a couple of points. I'll raise a couple of them and then open the floor to everybody else. Uh, first, you would assume that if uh, you know health, if, uh, if if the health of the people was so important to the ability to keep the fur trade going, that when vaccines became available, that we could eradicate or completely immunize people from smallpox, that the first thing you would do as a leader is go ahead and distribute those vaccines, get the people immunized. And yet they didn't. They had the supply, but the only time in which they ever actually distributed them, got people immunized, was when epidemics were approaching. And uh, that found that rather interesting. 
because it, it just runs kind of counterintuitive. And this is what this was not a an unemotional event when these epidemics were coming. Uh, the the paper talked about how the local Native Americans, regardless of tribe, they were in panic. And the second thing that was interesting was the contrast between the Canadian, effectively the Canadian response and the American response, because the American, um, the Americans at the time, uh, their companies that were down the Missouri River were definitely not as organized and not as thoughtful when it came to dealing with these epidemics as the HBC was. And the result was that the immunizations uh, were more successful. Smallpox, smallpox crises were averted compared to the United States. And it's, uh, it's something, you know, to think about, uh, say, in the present day, in which epidemics have come up and what's been the national response. And related to that, I think, you know, the fact that HBC as a company kind of like the Hackett argues that they served as a de facto public health agency ac across Western Canada. And I think this also makes us reflect upon, you know, what is the role of a company in society? Was it really a company as we under understand a company being today? Yes, uh, that's an excellent point because uh, really... Uh, HBC in its its early days uh, was both essentially a it was a it was a mesh of public and private organization public and private interests. Um, they the, today of course we think of companies as being private and public is being different. Uh, you know that's as uh, somewhat uh, separate. So public health becomes a public sector uh, thing. Uh, so it is, it is very, very different. And uh, we have to kind of think of that when we analyze it, because yeah, they, they were not like a, a regular company as we understand it now. Like what shall we do? Shall we focus a little bit on the, on the second point first and then go back to the first point? Sure. You're completely right, Tom. And you know, what, what, one of the interesting things that I was really surprised by was how Hackett pointed out the organizational elements which contributed to the success of HBC in treating the smallpox epidemic and making the comparison with other healthcare agencies at that time and what made them so successful in treating the epidemic. Uh, one of the things he's talking about is how they first quarantined people um, and then how they moved over to, to vaccination and kind of pointing out organizational design, pointing out hierarchy, lines of report as kind of a structure that could be utilized in treating the epidemic. And I suppose, Fritjof, you have more to say about this topic. I'll, I'll, let me just uh, try to pick it up. So kind of uh, the question that I had at, at, at the end, uh, I'll, I'll basically just kick the question back to you. So as I was reading uh, both papers, um, what I was thinking about uh, quite a lot is like kind of like this, this organizational design lens of how you ensure that as organization, on the one hand, you give your employees the, the leeway to deal with the different situations that they're facing. At the same time that you try to kind of like uh, keep this holistic idea of, of the organization, that the concept behind it, the, the design behind it, uh, that, that kind of like you, you keep all the, the different parts acting together. Yeah, in that sense, of there's not a lot uh, in the both papers about how how the discussions were going in, in London. Uh, we we hear sort of say more about uh, what in in the end made it into the the different documents, but not really how sort of say different documents were drafted, uh, what what the thinking was about that. 
But I'm I'm curious about kind of like how that would have worked out back then, but also how that works out in, in today's organizations where with Corona and the remote work and where you're trying to kind of keep this holistic idea of the organization and how, how you keep that alive, so to say. But that was more of a question. <laughs> I think there are kind of two angles to that. And uh, maybe first being being the good guy, pointing out how London headquarters did make sure there were enough vaccines shipped to Canada. So there were enough vaccines to immunize and vaccinate people against the smallpox. Uh, whether they did it was another question that we can get to. But the fact that they, you know, being an expert in trade, in logistics, in having a supply chain might have helped and uh, might have massively benefited the, the society in, in the Hudson Bay region in, in that they could utilize the same infrastructure for shipping vaccines to Canada as they used for uh, shipping fur back to Europe. And maybe that might also have been like, well, the author says that infrastructure was key and the kind of hierarchy, the hierarchical lines that were there were key in that they were more successful than, than other players in that time in treating the epidemic. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes, makes sense, absolutely. But like from an, from an organization design perspective, okay, like this is more logistics then, but sort of say how the other parties failed to deal with the situation while uh, HPC um, did manage to deal with that situation. Like from an organizational design perspective, can we, can we read something into the, the, the papers, into the case? Because now what, what you said sounded more like a logistical explanation, like they had the logistics, so they knew how to do it, as in they knew how to bring the vaccines there. And I guess that's a very important <laughs> factor that you do need to have to actually do vaccination. Let me check what's, what page this is. This is page 602. I, I can read this section um, if you like. So um, each year, goods, men and letters, among other things, were sent out, out from London or from Canada for the benefit of each post. The system was hierarchical. Instructions to the factors, traders and clerks in charge of posts and vaccine as well could be sent to a few main supply depots and from there to second order posts and from there to outposts. The HBC also benefited from a pre-existing working relationship with the Indians, which facilitated their cooperation. Does that answer your question? Yeah, because I guess there, there we have kind of like an answer to sort of say from an organizational design perspective, they depended on the Indians, of course, for a lot of the fur. If I understand correctly, there were other people also that, that were getting the fur, but there, there was one of the, the resources in that sense, or where they got the resource of, of the furs from. And that means that you want to have a good relationship with them, which means that you want to take care of them. And that's kind of like how you then see, okay, how do the different aspects of the organizations do or do not fit together? Uh, we depend on them, we want to keep them, so we have to vaccine uh, them, or we have to, we have to treat them, etc. Yeah. Exactly. And what, what kind of hack does is showing how this, um, you know, you also had this consortia of independent traders and they were way less, I think they were operating in the South, if I remember it correctly, they were way less successful. Like they faced the same challenges and they tried to take the same responsibility, but just lacking the infrastructure because they were independent traders, they were just missing the infrastructure. And that kind of brings us back to this question like okay you know what type of organization was this 
And uh, Dimitris, you were mentioning like how how you made the analogy with how uh, Al Qaeda or other terrorist organizations are operating similar, which is kind of a cell-like structure. I think in Japan they have a phrase for it called amoeba amoeba management, where you have very localized you know forms of operating where you have a lot of autonomy and control, which then comes with having to be accountable that you behave in the best interest of the organization. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little bit, there's a little bit more to that. As I mentioned in the previous part, there's also an element of normative control, which is, uh, you know, a bit of a shady way of uh, ensuring compliance with what you want to ensure compliance with. But I mean, fundamentally, the idea is really simple. You just want to get people who are on the same page as you are, uh, incentivize them in some way, as here they did with uh, giving some stock in the company after the reorganization. And uh, then they just, you know, do things your way, but in their self-interest. We, we have, uh, you know, elements of bridging pragmatic boundaries here, if we're going to invoke some knowledge management. Um, but it doesn't always work, because people are a bit more complex than than that, than to just simplify it in these limited parameters. And uh, Hackett doesn't really go much into that but the first paper did kind of mention some things when that broke down like with that uh, Christmas party that Tom talked about where the system doesn't quite function because we're more multifaceted and in that respect also not to forget that the time of uh, history that we're talking about is uh, rife with racism and uh, how Native set native populations were perceived by Europeans at the time is also something not to brush under the carpet. It might might be a factor in failure to distribute the vaccine there as well. Well, what I'm wondering is, what do we know, so to say, about the dominant management theories or like kind of like theories of action that people had uh, back then as they were managing these companies? The the term manager probably back then. Did, did that even exist? Like, how how were people trying to make sense of these organizations, uh, these these situations, these these questions that they're having? That's an excellent question because no, the the term manager did not exist in any way that we think of it, and I don't think they would think of themselves as managing. Like, obviously, the the practices and the the principles behind management are perennial. But management as such, as we know from listening to this podcast or recording it, you know, that only came about uh, in the late, late 1800s and early 1900s. So what they did have at the time, that, and, and I'm sort of thinking about that from time to time, is theories of um, uh, public administration. So you have political philosophy. There's a lot of that. You, you you have writings on that going back to ancient Greece. You have uh, you know Plutarch and and everyone in between. So I wonder if there was an element of that in how these organizations were run. And I think maybe as I mentioned in the beginning, that's where the metaphor or an analog of the Hudson Bay Company not as one organization, but as an association or a confederation comes into play more. 
So, for instance, just to illustrate a bit, um, in the in the first paper we've had stories of uh, how rituals and uh, appearances were made important in uh, illustrating the work ethic and presence of the company. So there was this one guy whose name I, I no longer remember who was managing by canoeing around and uh, he would change into clean clothing, clean pompous clothing before disembarking to a new post every time in order to communicate this uh, image of organizational and corporate grandeur and, uh, and formality to the people on the ground, uh, partially to signal power and authority, but partially to indicate to them the level of work ethic that is expected of them, right? So that's not a traditionally organizational practice. That's, but that is a governance practice. So you, you have the military traditions, you have royal and, uh, and, and various hierarchical traditions that we can read about throughout history that make use of rituals, um, mythology, and effectively dressing up to indicate hierarchy and status and so on and so forth. So maybe one way to think about these old, big organizations is from the perspective of um, mini-governance, mini mini-empire, mini mini-monarchy, uh, which is effectively the larger ecosystem in which they operated anyway, as, as much as we do in operate in liberal democracies now, for the most part. But no, I don't think they were managers, and I don't think you could justifiably describe them as managers in, in what they did. But I think that's uh, that's a very uh, important point. That I mean, if, in general, if you look at sort of say the first stock trader companies, etc., like a lot of them were kind of like governments in the sense of that the government uh, granted rights to uh, spice trading, granted rights to fur trading, etc. But then I guess they they kind of like they took the the existing uh, ideas of how to govern uh, uh, also to run a company like this. But then I guess you also start to having yeah, the the new ideas coming up that that are more closer to what management. I'm I'm just curious. It's not really part of the paper, I guess, but I'm just uh, now getting curious about how, so to say, governance moved into more management-oriented questions because you started having organizations that are not government, but kind of like in between, like the East India Trading Company, the, the Dutch East India Trading Company, etc., or Hudson Bay. So maybe we could use the question described in the paper as kind of a, an example here to, to kind of get a little bit deeper into, into this question. In the paper, it kind of folks, you know, as Tom pointed out in the beginning, even though London shipped enough vaccines to Canada to vaccinate the Native Americans, the local trade post did not decide to proactively vaccinate, but they engaged in a practice of reactive vaccination as kind of a strategy. And now the question is, you know, like tapping into Dimitri's point about, you know, in that time period, what was the view that Europeans had of Native Americans? It's striking that the the London headquarters saw it as essential that the Native Americans, not only the people providing the fur, but also their families and their children were vaccinated. The Europeans on the ground running the operations decided not to do that. 
They only decided to do that when there was an upcoming threat of smallpox outbreak. I mean, maybe it wasn't also entirely safe for them to just go out into the native populations and poke them with needles. You know, imagine the situation reversed where you have, you know, where, where you're the Native Americans and you have a uh, technologically superior, weird-looking group of people coming and, you know, inoculating you and you don't understand what that is or why. Um, these dynamics are not covered. We, we know there's a history of hostility between settlers and, and companies and native populations and we don't know exactly what's the sort of relations that the Hudson Bay Company had with their local, uh, you know, local suppliers, to put it that way. Well, it definitely uh, differed from, you know, tribe to tribe. The relationship was more favorable in a lot of the Canadian territories than it was in the American territories. But I think uh, part of it, part of it is is just attributed to what what does the leader of the post see as the most, uh, you know, pressing matter before them. And that's the core, you know, the core operation of, uh, of collecting the furs. Even with the communications from London, I mean, you're right, this, it may be a matter of that uh, they, they really didn't feel comfortable going to the Native Americans saying that we need to, uh, we need to do this. But it's, it's, I think it's also a matter of that uh, they just didn't see it as pressing until it became pressing. And so then, you know, what keeps them on London's good side ultimately is the, pro- is the provision of first. That's their core purpose. So it's like if you're out in the front ground, it's like, all right, this, the rest of this stuff is noise. I know I've got to make sure that that boat is filled with furs. So that's what I'm going to concentrate my energy on and everything else is mildly interesting. I think that's what drove a lot of it. I agree. And we know that they were compared locally as well. So they were benchmarked against one another on performance. Right. So we know that happened. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when there is no epidemic around, you know, you wonder how much do you really think about vaccination? It's very different nowadays. Like vaccination is such a natural part of what we do now. It's it's embedded. It's, you know, we wouldn't we wouldn't think otherwise necessarily. But for them at the time, you know, if there was no pressing need, what? why would you worry about it? Why, why would it be so important? So it's, uh, yeah, I think that played into it. And not to forget that vaccinating an entire Native American community is a very big endeavor. And uh, I'm kind of thinking about, you know, the current situation that we're facing now. Like, I'm in lockdown here in Oxford in the UK because of uh, the coronavirus outbreak. And um, this morning I was reading a paper that a friend of mine uh, wrote. She's a scientist in, in China. The paper was about the question why the local government was conservative initially in taking action. They kind of identified the outbreak of corona like a, a small likelihood high impact case and how usually governments are conservative when they face this type of, of threats. So there's a small likelihood that it will happen. If it happens, it's, it's massively disruptive. Like Dimitri said, like I think Demetrius said we should see uh, HPC more as a government-like entity. I think we can draw some interesting analogies here with these trade posts 
acting like local governments. And indeed, as Tom, you pointed out, like, you know, they had to juggle different things. And it was massively disruptive to vaccinate and hampering the economic interests that they had as well to secure uh, the trade with Europe. Yeah, I also think it's kind of interesting that uh, uh, thinking about the way that the Native Americans reacted when an epidemic was coming. So uh, because of the fact that they recognized that an epidemic was coming and it caused them panic and it caused them to all come looking for vaccination, I think that kind of speaks against the idea that the post leaders didn't think about approaching the Native Americans about it. I don't think the Native Americans were necessarily opposed to having them come and vaccinate them because it was very clear that when the epidemics came, they, they knew where to go. They knew what to do. It was not a, so much of an issue. So could we maybe say, based upon Hackett's interpretation of, of the case, that in the face of a threat, such as the outbreak of smallpox, HPC acted more government-like, but in the absence of that threat, that they acted more company-like, with an economic interest. So maybe their role in society like expanded and contracted depending on the environment. Or, or simply shifted back and forth because, again, they were they wore both hats. I mean, essentially, they were both public and private sector in, in, in our parlance nowadays. So it was a matter of shifting back and forth, the pendulum swing, perhaps. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, their role, the what role was more salient at the time shifts uh, shifted back and forth. I mean, I guess that's one of the drawbacks that distributed organizations, especially, you know, holographic like this one, have is that by virtue of being decentralized, either because of how they're designed or because there's uh, a lag in the communication, you can't, you know, they're unwieldy from the center. The in the situation, London couldn't just issue a, a directive that would be received quickly to state that you have to do this. This is the new company policy. This is our, your new priorities. They uh, they had to interpret that based on the existing set of assumptions, uh, you know, in each of the trading posts. And because the existing set of assumptions was not the, the crisis one, um, as was then and, and as we have now, then that's, I think, one of the reasons why the response was, uh, you know, uneven, sloppy, and uh, and underwhelming. When I think about uh, multinational corporations nowadays, and when they have cells that are in uh, forward locations, sometimes they do, in, in times of crisis like this, they do behave not, I mean, they don't assume public sector responsibilities, but they can have some of those same behaviors and assume some responsibility that can be in competition with the local um, with the local government. Um, I just think about uh, some of the multinationals who I saw in Asia, where in a time of crisis, who do the members turn to? Do they turn to the government first or do they turn to the company that's employing them? And sometimes it's the company that's employing them. And certainly that's the case with military organizations that are distributed all over the place. We, in a lot of ways, our uh, forward bases operate as you know local governments representing the, uh, the, the host nation. And even if we have uh, people living out in the, uh, out in the local economy, they'll still look to 
the garrison and that organization as their source of guidance when it comes to governance level type activities, you know, before and, and the and that local garrison is the one who's going to negotiate with the local government to figure out, well, where's the where's where's the connection? What what is it that the uh, military element there needs to do? And that, I think, brings us back to this question, like what type of organization was HBC at the time? I really like your analogy with the army, uh, which I also mentioned in part one. It, it really makes sense. And it, it's also like the way they fostered the culture, uh, which is very family-like, where, you know, like the, the hierarchy was also shown in the tables people were dining at, uh, the types of food and drinks they got as they were on the boats being shipped to Canada from, from the UK, and then the type of accommodation they got upon arrival. And what you saw also after the first outbreak of smallpox described in a paper, and that was in, I think, in the late 17th century, there was no vaccination at the time, and quarantining failed because of the French invasion and, and HBC uh, people in the trade post, having to leave their posts and kind of ruining the entire structure they had in place. But after that, widows and orphans that survived the smallpox outbreak were taken care for by the trade posts. They offered this family-like, that's what, what the author says, up to the point that another kind of new new family was found. And now I'm, I'm just thinking about the current situation and, uh, you know, like studying work and employment. It's, it's very hurting to see organizations and companies in the UK now, a lot of them fire their employees or job ads are not being advertised anymore or withdrawn. In, uh, we have this massive turn towards independent contract work where people have no protections and their business dries up because we don't uh, ask for their services anymore as we're all in, in, in lockdown. And, you know, it, it again poses this question, like, you know, we have been asking this question, in, especially in the past two decades, who needs to bear the risk when employment becomes more precarious? And now we see that the risk is increasingly being shifted towards the worker who is really not able to bear it in a time of a corona outbreak. And what you saw in this case was that the risk was bared by HPC, and they took that very seriously. I think that's a great point. I mean, there's a couple of nuances that that are different between uh, the situation that HBC was in. Like, for example, they, uh, they had to ensure security of their assets by themselves. Most companies these days don't have to deal with that because most states maintain monopoly on power, on violence. Um, but that wasn't the case then with the frontier organizations. But beyond that, and, and this is an ongoing trend where the responsibility for the employee, their training, their capital, is sort of shifting away from the employer to the employee themselves. We, we had this conversation in one of the episodes, I don't remember which one anymore, um, where is education a public or private good you know and it's a, it's a similar thing here but more encompassing as you pointed out that the issues of safety well-being uh, workplace safety training all that kind of stuff somehow are 
sort of normalized as being shifted to the individuals and away from the organizations, which is, uh, you know, something we keep observing and it's not necessarily super optimism inspiring. I think it's it's a it's a natural tension so long as we have you know public and private sector being separate discrete organizations there's there's some overlap but uh, so long as they're discrete you'll naturally have regardless of what you what you have I'd say that you're going to have a tension which side is going to be providing what to uh, the members of uh, members of the organization or members of society it's a, it'll continue to be a natural tension because the one is going to want to shift the risk to the other as, a, as kind of a start point. One is going to want to minimize its cost, have control, greater control over the, the situation. Uh, so right now, the pendulum is swinging one particular way. This situation may be one that changes the conversation and says we need to move back in a different or go back in a different direction. But I don't know that that's a, a, so long as we live in a structure where public interests and private interests are just, you know, are represented by discrete organizations. I think that's going to be a persistent tension. It'll be a persistent negotiation. It's just a, a, a pendulum swing. I've been using that metaphor a lot in this episode. Yeah, I think that should be the title really of the episode. <laughs> We start off with it, and it keeps coming up. I agree, it works very well. Just a reflection is that we have a case here of a fully distributed organization that is led at a distance under conditions of lifetime employment, you could say. So people had pensions, people had, had a, like retirement benefits, they were provided housing. If people died, their families were being taken care of. It was a very paternalistic family-like culture and a way of seeing themselves as an entity and their responsibilities. So it was not only trade, but it was also taking care of the people that enabled that business, that trade to happen. And now what we see is that the organizations that are most distributed and remote, I'm thinking of these online labor platforms, where you know that not not talking about employment practices of, of these platforms themselves, but the companies that make use of them hire these remote workers as freelancers, as independent contractors. So this is completely the opposite from the case we're discussing here. And it, it poses questions like what we see is, you know, like seeing HBC as a partly organization-like and partly government-like entity uh, that took a lot of the risk and responsibility. We now see that companies engage in practices where the risk is increasingly shifted towards the worker. And now the government is stepping in with, with all these measures. We see it country after co country is announcing their, their funds available to take care of, of the most precarious ones. And I think it really like, you know, as we get out of this, to think about what is the social contract that comes with work? You know, we all see the benefits of, you know, having more independence and freedom and less control, and I guess as a work you enjoy that, but also having to bear the risk, and which now, in a time of, of an outbreak, we can really not bear. So if, if we really want to change the types of employment that, well, it has already changed, and, uh, you know, like in the US, estimates are that 30 to 50% of people are, are contract-based. Here we have a lot of precarious people in the, in the worker category. Like, what is the social contract, the social arrangement that should come with it? I think that's on point because 
you know, with rights also come responsibilities and to take, you know, a, a look at it from the other direction. Um, if if people, obviously not all people, not all the time, but I think you'll agree with me that it's a cultural shift that if, if people want to have choice over their employment, want to ensure, you know, upward mobility, um, be able to capitalize on their competitive advantage through education networks what have you you know that presents risk to organizations such as the hudson bay company of those years that we're talking about these large kind of well not monolithic but kind of you know temporarily monolithic companies that also rely on long-term participation of its members because we, we keep talking about how it resembles a government entity. Well, governments have a different relationship with uh, with citizens than companies have with employees, and there are different expectations and different things that employees sign off to their employer as opposed to citizens that sign off to the government. You know, there is a number of political theories that state that as a citizen of a... Of a of a country, you effectively, um, you, ah, what's the word, um, to give up, starts with an F, you, yeah, you, then, there's a number of, of political theories that state that as a citizen, you, you forfeit your, your life, in some cases, some more extreme cases, to the country, because the country protects you, you know, that's not the case with companies, that, that would be, borderline absurd uh, it wasn't like that all the time hudson bay you go to canadian wilderness that is a very similar situation in many respects nowadays you're in the middle of london you're a freelancer you're working for a corporation it's not the same kind of uh, relationship you have with the company anymore but it is still a similar kind of relationship that you have with your country so there's that to keep in mind as well how do how do people how do workers employees you know capitalists entrepreneurs think of what a company is nowadays as opposed to back then and what kind of ramifications that has on on these various types of relationships that we're talking about uh, that gets into uh, an important uh, difference between how, say, public sector organizations measure themselves versus private sector organizations. We know that private sector organizations measure themselves in terms of revenue, in terms of expenses, and things of that nature. And public sector organizations measure themselves in terms of equity, in terms of you know the equality of uh, access to services in terms of the um, freedom from corruption in the delivery of those services and ensuring that everybody is, you know, you have such different ways of even measuring what it is that you receive from the organization that, you know, in, in the present circumstance, you know, what what we're valuing is to, the ensure, uh, assuring that everybody gets a fair opportunity to be protected or to be cared for I have a very different idea, uh, namely, um, so as different nations are now coping with the coronavirus, we also see kind of like a reflection of their 
I don't know if the term is appropriate, but let's let's just go with it. Uh, kind of like the, the national design, as in like how different parts of the nation sort of say do and do not fit together. And that uh, I think legitimate critique of Asian countries and of people from Asia living in European and in, in America is that, you know, we had SARS, we had MERS. You could have learned a lot from that as, as Western nations. But the assumption being that, well, our healthcare system is better, uh, we, we yeah, wouldn't be the so bad here, it just completely failed. And at the same time, seeing how Korea, with uh, not actually that drastic measurements, is actually really, you know, keeping things relatively safe. The same also with Singapore, that there's like a, a failure to learn from these situations. And at the same time, it just exposes, uh, sort of say, like fundamental flaws in the way that the, that the nation is set up. Like, for example, in the US, that a lot of people don't have healthcare um, uh, insurance, which means that a lot of people can't really afford a treatment for Corona. Because the moment that you that you get treatment for Corona, you might end up with uh, with 30,000, whatever depth that, that you might uh, incur. And so like on a system level, we see now a lot of problems come up that before might have not come up because with pandemics or epidemics, uh, there's a very clear role for government. Because that's, of course, like a, a lot of times the, the, the discussion, like what, what's the role of a nation? And then usually like uh, fighting fires because, yeah, if, if, if your neighbor's house burns, then, then you're also uh, not going to be happy. Uh, police, but I think uh, pandemics and epidemics in that sense is really something where a, a nation and the government has to step in and, and early. Yes, and I agree. And, you know, like what industrial relations scholars have said time and time again, pointing out the gaps in our social security net. Now they're visibly clear for us and, and the people around us. I mean, let, let's keep in mind that that depends on, as you pointed out, Friti, of how a system is set up. You know, in, in some, we might see this as a, as a flaw, but that's from our perspective, you know. Um, I personally see the way um, you know gun control handled in U.S. as a as a flaw. But then, if I look at how the nation is set up, then that's that makes sense. You know, you in in you brought up example of Singapore. Um, what they did there to contain the spread, I I would we we're now beginning to see similar measures in liberal democracies in Europe, in the U.S. But even a couple of weeks ago, measures like that would, I think, not really be conceivable for populations operating within, you know, our system of beliefs. And yeah, it might be a flaw in hindsight, but um, that I, I would refrain from necessarily framing it in, in that way. But absolutely on the point of learning. So let's um, let's kind of wrap up a little bit in the sense that we we decided to do this episode in in the wake of this unprecedented situation that we're going through um i can't speak for tom he's been around for a while but i think the the remaining three of us this is the first such experience in in our lifetimes that that we're we're going through on such a scale and we picked a couple of classical papers as we do on this podcast that's that's why we're here how does that translate does it does it translate at all what is there something that we can learn from the hudson bay example that could inform our situation today 
both in the sense of what's going on on macro scale, but also thinking of that we're by and large sitting home, hopefully, if we're responsible and not stupid as some people are. And uh, does that teach us anything? Or is the situation now so different that managing by canoeing, managing by sitting at home in front of the computer just doesn't apply anymore? Are we on precipice of something new and potentially exciting, but, you know, probably fairly damaging? Or what's up with that? Do we Did we learn anything is the question here, I guess. What I was uh, wondering is, I see that now. So I'm I'm currently engaged in uh, in fieldwork in uh, two sites, uh, and kind of like remotely in a third one. Uh, plus, of course, I see what's happening uh, uh, at my own university, and I see that we start having online interaction, like collective coffee break. That's actually something that that uh, one of the sites and and at work we we started having at, uh, at the one of the field sites. They even started to have happy hour together. So where they normally would have had drinks uh, once a week together, they just now sit in front of uh, <laughs> their laptop. Everybody gets a drink and and they try to have a good time. But like as an as an conscious effort of not losing touch and and not feeling lonely in this situation, especially because at university there's a lot of students, especially PhD students, master students, etc., that that don't have the family around, that have to rely on uh, on uh, these these remote ways of staying in touch. They they can be quite lonely uh, out here with without family and maybe not not so many friends. And that I see like in that sense, kind of like new practices emerging. Say in my department, I think I've I've tried for a while to have these coffee breaks, but there was not really a, a taker so much, uh, and now it's like it's emerging out of this situation. So I'm just curious, like how many of these things we will keep down the line? So when things are normal again, that we still feel like, hey, let's let's have these kind of social moments, let's have these kind of interactions. So I I see it also a bit as a learning opportunity that we l- learn better about how work and organization etc. gets done, and that we can actually take a lot from from these remote collaborations. Like for example, our podcast. Uh, for us, in a sense, Corona for the podcast does really make a difference because. We've always been remote in that sense, but then realizing that actually our remoteness is, is a strength here. It's kind of like, it's not that we had like a design before and like, uh, uh, in case anything ever happens, we have this uh, this as option. No, that was just from the beginning, but now it, it, it turns out to be uh, uh, creating a kind of resilience that we can still keep making the podcast. So I'm, I'm just curious, like what, what lessons we can take from this time towards a, a time that hopefully soon and is more normal than, than this phase we I think we always learn learn something when we look back in history and find that uh, there's there's always some parallel between what has happened 250 years ago with what is uh, transpiring today. History is useful for helping uh, illuminate the present situation. And I think it's useful to understand what it is, you know, how similar problems have been solved in the past, even if maybe the ways and means are a little bit different from what we have available to us, it's really still kind of the same ends. It's still the same goal of trying to further the organization's uh, mission and protect itself from falling apart in the face of crisis. The, the ways and means may change, but human nature, character of human nature, character of societies and how it responds to crisis 
it's always kind of reassuring in a way that to be able to look back at history and see a lot of the same things that can help us, you know, understand the current situation much better. Well, and perhaps this is also an opportunity to ask these questions to our audience. And uh, I, I would love to hear from our audience what they think, what we can learn from this case and what their takeaways were. Yeah, absolutely. Um, get in touch with us via social media or send us an email either to the, to the podcast. Um, although probably don't do that. We temporarily have no access to it or to any one of us individually. We're easy to find. So let's engage as we are in a one-on-one relationship with through our computers. Let's engage in a conversation about what does the Hudson Bay teach us or not and where do we go from here. And that concludes the episode for today. Thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoyed the conversation and found it valuable. You may not know this, but we really love receiving feedback from our listeners. So if you liked or didn't like something, or have a correction or suggestion for us, please get in touch via Twitter, Facebook, or our website, www.talkingaboutorganizations.com. Finally, we would like to thank some of the best people for supporting the show. Sarah Otner, Leon Preto, Hadi Shaheen, Marshall Reiner, Alice Barbosa, Thomas Roulet, Heiko Schmidt, Barton Friedland, Gildem Karamustafa, Roberta Bernardi, Bernard Hogan, Eddie Hunsinger, Pix Kraft, Timothy Paul, Willi Lechton Virta, and Gabriel Van Bunnen. And I apologize if I mispronounced your name. You are still the best and we love you so much. It's easy to support the show, and all you have to do is go to our website where a donations button will greet you. You can't miss it. Thank you for listening, and we hope to see you next time for part 2 of the episode here on Talking About Organizations. 